Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode number 32 of the ZappaCast for June of 2017. It's been a long time coming, but this is the first new episode of the new year. And in this episode, we are going to do something that we probably should have done last year, which was celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Freak Out album, which, as I'm saying this, is just about 51 years old. So we're going to pay tribute to this very seminal Frank Zappa album with an all-Frank Zappa cast. That means that we're going to be hearing live versions of nearly every track from the Freak Out album, and those selections are going to be linked by bits of interviews from over the years where Frank talked about Freak Out and the making of the album and all that good stuff. So without further ado, it sure is nice to be back, and we're talking Freak Out right here on the ZappaCast. How did the first album ever get recorded? Uh, well, I'll tell you the complete story of Freak Out album. First of all, you got to understand this project, although the band's been together about 19 months, the project was carefully planned about three years ago. I'd been looking for people to put together to do this number. Mm-hmm. I, I was in advertising before I got into uh, show business, <laughs> and uh, I'd done a little uh, motivational research and checked around, uh, and it's one of the laws of economics that uh, if there is a demand, uh, somebody ought to supply that demand and you're going to get rich, okay? So I pieced together uh, a composite... Uh, gap-filling product. Our product fills most of the gaps that exist between uh, so-called uh, serious music and the mass public. In other words, uh, really good music has been kept from the public by a filtering system of little old ladies who select the music played by community orchestras. Yeah. Wilson came to the Whiskey A Go-Go while we were uh, five pieces with Henry. Mm-hmm and heard us sing the Watts Riot song. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stayed for five minutes and says, yeah, 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 slapped me on the back, shook my hand, wonderful, we're going to re- make a record of it. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Didn't see him again for like four months. Yeah. Sure, so he thought we were a rhythm and blues band. He went back, ah, oh, sign me another rhythm and blues band. <laughs> on the coast. And they got this song about, oh, got a couple of niggers in it. And he says, nigger in there, one time. I don't know what it is, but it's a protest song. And, uh, yeah, we got them. Uh, they'll be okay. Yeah, a couple of singles, maybe, and then they'll die out. All right, so then he came back to town uh, just before we were going to set up the uh, the procession. And we had a little chat in his room. When That was when he first discovered that uh, that wasn't the only thing that we played. Mm-hmm. And, and then things started changing. You know, in terms of uh, what we we're going to do, we decided not to make a single. We we're going to make an album. So he wouldn't give me an idea what the budget was on the album, mm-hmm. but uh, the average rock and roll album is going to cost about five thousand dollars to put together. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, start to finish cost on Freak Out was somewhere around twenty-one thousand. America, walk on by, the mindset won't be reached. Mr. America, try to hide. 
first heard us, we were working at a club in Hollywood called the Whiskey A Go-Go. And the A&R man, uh, producer, Tom Wilson, came in, he heard us play one song. It was the Watts Riot song. And that's sort of an R&B type thing. So he figures, oh, a topical R&B group, just what we need. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so he phones up the company, ah, oh, I got one, da-da-da-da. We get into the studio, you know, that was two months later, we go into the studio to record. And they didn't know what was happening. He got on the phone. We'd, first, we did Any Way the Wind Blows. That was the first thing we recorded. And the second thing we did was Who Are the Brain Police? And by the time we finished Brain Police, his head was going around like this. You know, and he says, 
Man, what happened to that other one that I heard at the Whiskey A Go-Go? And he called back to New York and he said, we got something strange happening here. And the whole project just expanded incredibly. You know, everybody got real thrilled all of a sudden. They thought they really had a hot item on their hands. Then the cost of recording Freakout kept booming. It, uh, instead of starting off saying, well, you guys, uh, you guys are real swell. We're going to give you $20,000, which is approximately four times the cost of the average rock and roll album to manufacture, and uh, you're going to turn out one heck of a good album. Instead, they kept trying to keep the budget down, but it expanded up to $20,000. They reached that point. They didn't want to spend any more and figured, well, it'll sell. Uh, we'll spend $5,000 promoting it. So when it was finally put on the stands, our promotion budget on the album was what you'd call peanuts. Absolutely Free had a promotion budget of $25,000 and consequently got up to about number 20 on the charts. Freak Out never got up to number 20 on the charts, but it's still selling after about a year and a half. And it sells regularly between four and 8,000 copies a week, and it won't stop. orchestra songs. 
which is not just a or straight orchestra accompanying singers. It was like the mother's five-piece band plus 17 pieces. You know, we're all working right. together. And uh, then the editing took a long time, which ran the, the cost up. And meanwhile, Wilson's sticking his neck out, and he laid his job on the line to produce the fucking thing. <laughs>
Where'd the mothers come from? Mothers were formed in May of 1964 in Cucamonga, California, which is a town about 65 miles outside of Hollywood. Has it gone the way you've wanted it to? Well, it ain't too shabby. There have been a few surprises, you know, but uh, I think that most of my expectations have been met for the first 10-year period. What were they? What were your expectations? Well, when we put out the Freak Out album, uh, I thought that it was going to be received with some mixed emotions. I didn't think that people were going to jump up immediately and dance to it, but I had the uh, an inner feeling that it was going to turn some people's heads around, especially if they were chemically altered at the time that they listened to it. <laughs> and the reason I felt this is not out of some uh, mere whim, because I went so far as to do some psychological testing with uh, various... Uh, in various social categories to see what the response was going to be to the album. And to give you an example, I took two girls from the waitress staff at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Hollywood to my place and played them the first mixtapes of the album. And everything was fine until they got to Who Are the Brain Police? And they were terrified. What kind of reaction do you think you'd get now if you did that? Any different? It depends. You know, they weren't uh, stoned or anything when they listened to it. And I figured that if that song scared them, I mean, they wanted to run out of the room. They just gave them the creeps so bad they didn't know what was going on. And I figured that if they had that kind of a response, considering what their socioeconomic background was, that I could extrapolate from that that a certain other uh, person in a similar age group, um, chemically altered, would have drastic and long-lasting effects from exposure to the album. And... Uh, they did. I'm still... <laughs> they still coming over and saying, do you know what happened when I heard that <laughs> A year ago today was when you went away. But now you come back knocking on my door and you say you want to buy some acid. But I say, go cry. Anymore. Do, do, do. 
tears fall out of your eye. Let them fall on your crotch. You know how I love to watch. I gave you my high school ring at the Hippo Burger Baby. We had a teenage love, and you still got pregnant. So how long how long were you making the album? I mean, how, how, Recording it? Well, how long had that idea of doing Freak Out been there? I don't even remember at this point. Like I say, it's just like any of the other albums. I don't sit around thinking, ah, oh, I can hardly wait to record We're Only In It for the Money. I've waited years to make an album called We're Only In It for the Money. It's not like that. Just going in, make an album when it's done, give it a name, figure a way to package it, and then promote the album. It's made just like all the other albums. But those sessions must have been incredible. Not exactly incredible. A few eyebrows went up and down, but... Why so? Well, you got to remember, at the time Freakout was recorded, there had never been anything of that sort happening from a rock and roll band. We went into a nice, normal Hollywood recording studio, nice, normal engineers and other people. I started doing Who Are the Brain Police, and people were like, what is happening? is used erroneously but these are very beautiful people the mothers what you need is motherly love Your neck 
Thank you. Uh, we're supposed to plug our album, some of which are on sale in the back of the building. That's a pretty commercial thing to do, but we're in this for the money. I think we would have sold 250,000 albums by now if MGM would have, one, not moved offices <clears throat> and slowed down in its uh, hype of what the album was, mm -hmm. and two, simply distributed the, the advertising material that uh, was paid for uh, you know, out of our account mm -hmm. to hype the record. Well, they got buttons and stickers and stuff sitting up the office now that were never gotten to the stores. What about that map of Los Angeles? Uh, well, that's my fault. Uh, I've got it in my room right now. Oh. I'm finishing it all. I got the first side finished, but see, I made I made the map, <clears throat> and then all these things started happening. Disaster yeah, right. A, disaster <laughs> B, and now I'm redoing the thing on there about Pandora's box because mm -hmm. I want to get that on there. And we've got people that have sent for it that are screaming for their bread, so it's mm -hmm. going to go out. I'll finish the thing off this week. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a question of re redoing that and putting some pictures on the other side of the map, but it'll be really groovy. So that's how the first Freak Out album mm -hmm. got together. How has it been selling, by the way? It's selling very well. In mm -hmm. fact, the MGM felt that they had spent too much money on it already, mm -hmm. and were going to let it die but it started selling again, and it kept on selling, and now they don't know what it is. And I went down there the other day, and I went into this, you know, big sales cheese office. I said, you guys are fucked. You don't know what you're doing. You've got the Beatles on your hands, and you're sitting there with your thumb up your ass, and you don't know what you're doing, man. And he looked at me like, I'm just crazy. <laughs> you know, and I said, you sold, uh, well, like this one week when we first came to New York. No extra hype, no nothing. There was 5,000 sales all over the country and 40 of them in a town the size of a, a pumpkin in <laughs> Wyoming. <coughs> it was really unbelievable. Thank you. 
Somebody approached me with an interesting question about uh, the title of the first album, Freak Out, and uh, the whole idea of psychedelic songs. What you, is a person... You realize there wasn't any prior to this. And if you ask about, uh, have we influenced the market, stop and think about how many times you've seen that in places like sports columns, uh, freak out sales, and uh, weirdness upon weirdness, and uh, we have had lawsuit upon lawsuit against... These people, this is a copyrighted term. Those of you out there who might be planning to use the word freak out in conjunction with some business, naughty, naughty, will sue you to death. A magazine uh, was about to go onto the market uh, called Freak Out USA, and they have received a telegram saying cease and desist, you fools, because it will cost you a great quantity of money. Uh, somehow or another, this group which many people felt had no commercial potential whatsoever, have managed to influence some very important areas of American life. And nobody will really be able to analyze the full impact of the Mothers of Invention for at least five years when you can sit back and see it all in perspective. Baby, you're so deep, deep. I don't even care if you shave your legs. 
originally just called the Mothers, and then um, when we finally got our record contract with MGM, some pinhead there had decided that um, this was a bad name for a group and that no radio station would ever play our records because uh, the name was too risque. And they were suggesting other things that we should change it to. So out of necessity, we became the mothers of invention. It was just by adding those other two words to it, we were able to keep the record company happy. But naturally, the radio stations didn't play the music anyway because it wasn't about the name of the band. It was what we were singing about and the way the music sounded. Because at the time, it was, uh, you know, if you were a good musician, uh, you were a motherfucker. And Mothers was short for Collection of Motherfuckers. And actually, it was kind of presumptuous to uh, name the band that because we weren't that good musicians. We were, but by bar band standards in the area, we were light years ahead of our competition. But in terms of uh, real musicianship, I suppose we were right down there in the swamp. <laughs> place to go I'm tired of walking up and down this street all by myself no love left for me to give I try and try but no one wants me the way I am why should I pretend I like to roam from door to door maybe I'll just kill myself I just don't care no more because I'm not satisfied Everything I've tried I don't like the way Life has been abusing me exist in Europe. The album sells well in Sweden and uh, and Holland. Not it doesn't sell as well in uh, England, but that's mainly the fault of the record company. Uh, 
because when they released it there, they just pressed it and put it on the stand without any you know, concurrent publicity, and you have to have a certain amount of uh, machinery to get the ball rolling. But it has been what you might call an underground success because uh, my sources inform me that most of the groups over there have a copy and listen to it regularly, faithfully. Eric Burden from The Animals liked it very well. He performs uh, uh, several of the songs from the first album with his group. And The Who were interested in Who Are the Brain Police for a single, I was told. That's it, a white blues group. Let's go sign him up. So he left, and 
Um, the deal was made uh, shortly thereafter. We received the enormous sum of $2,500 for the contract. And we went into the studio and started recording. And the first song that we did was uh, Anywhere the Wind Blows. And the second song we recorded was Who Are the Brain Police? And that's when he got on the phone and called New York and said, uh, you won't believe this, but... <laughs> and uh, he just got a bunch of surprises very fast during that first day of recording. And $21,000 later, yeah, it was all history. Unfortunately, the album wasn't completed. I mean, they made me stop working on it because uh, they just wouldn't give me any more money to finish it off. A couple of the pieces... Uh, on side four are just basic tracks. They don't have all the rest of the overdubs on it. I think the image of the mothers is very unconventional, but musically it's a very tight, or has always been a very tight and disciplined unit. Well, usually before we do a tour, we'll rehearse for two months, five days a week, six to ten hours a day. So it's a real hard job. Sure. Because then you were accused of overworking musicians on one occasion. No, I don't see how I could possibly be accused of overworking a musician. That's a contradiction in terms. Think of it this way. If you're a musician and you love music, you should love to play. You should also love to do a good job, which means you must also love to rehearse. If you're an undisciplined person, this kind of a schedule might interfere with your social life. You might want to do other things. Well, that's just too bad. Because, you know, you get a job in my band and I pay you money to play music, you are going to play that music right or you're not going to play it at all. <laughs>
above ground to the point where some radio stations will, you know, in answer to the, the public demand. No. Our aim is to kill Top 40 Radio within the next six months, if possible. And if you'll hear the second album, you'll see where that might happen. Mm -hmm. we've, we've decided certain concessions have to be made before a record is air-playable, right? right? Now, I'm not in the business to compete with makers of Hanky Panky, right. you know. I'm, that record has got to be air-playable, man. That can't hurt nobody. And it ain't gonna move you either, and that's not why I'm writing music. You know, like I, the only reason I put this thing together is I'm a composer, and nobody wanted to hear any of my music. Okay, it pissed me off. So I said, well, if you don't want to hear it, I'm gonna put me a band together, and I'm gonna make you listen to it, motherfucker. And we did, you know, and it's been working, and uh, people are listening to that stuff. You know, they're wondering why it's there and why it sounds like that, but I make him hear it, you know, and sometimes they like it.
Well, you see, at the time Freak Out came out, there was no such thing as psychedelic music. And there was no such thing as Susie Cream Cheese or Freak Out or that wasn't the happening thing. And the use of the word freak out in Los Angeles as a colloquial localism uh, referred to, and there's an explanation in the album, you know, had this whole thing about people getting together and dancing and doing this big thing. And that's what the scene was in L.A. And that's what the uh, intent of the title was to convey, not a bad LSD trip or you know, weirdness. It's just people... Uh, for instance, in, in Pachuco slang, do you know anything about Pachucos? Pachucos, during uh, the season when they were really happening, uh, they're Mexican youths who wore a certain type of clothing. It's where peggers came from, real tight at the ankles, and then gradually getting bigger here, pleated fronts on the pants, one-button-roll pink flannel coats, keychains. Now, zoot suit guys, all right? Uh, they have a peculiar sort of slang, which is based on uh, Spanish, but words change in uh, pronunciation from area to area. A, one, a Spanish ghetto in one city will say a word one way, and uh, in another state the same ghetto is going to say it a different way. The word means basically the same thing, but the context in which it u is used may change. Like, uh, there's a, an expression uh, that means gee whiz. In one place it may be ijola, in another place it may be ijuela. Okay? And language is not really adequate for communicating ideas you know, when you have to. The only way you're really going to be able to get ideas across is when people can think them to each other. <coughs> Words really get in the way. So you get hung up in the packaging expressions. I was offended when uh, Capitol put out an album that had a glossary of uh, terms in there that described Freak Out as a bad LSD trip because I thought people would start associating our album with uh, that, and, and they did. <laughs> what can you do? It can't happen here. It can't happen here. I'm telling you, my dear, that it can't happen here. Because I've been checking it out, baby. I checked it out a couple of times. Oh, darling, it's important that you believe me, Bob, Bob, that it can't happen here. Could imagine that they would freak out somewhere in Kansas. Kansas, 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 they would freak out in Minnesota. That they would freak out in Washington, D.C. ACDC, ba ba ba. ACDC, ba ba ba. ACDC, ba ba ba. Excuse me, Dick, but I remember Tutu. I remember Tutu. I remember Tutu. We have a swimming pool. I remember Tutu. I remember Tutu. I remember Tutu. We had some water for the swimming pool. 
and we thought it couldn't happen here. We thought it couldn't happen, but Susie, Susie Cream Cheese, this is the voice of your conscience, honey, and I just want to check one thing out with you. What is it? Susie Cream Cheese, my dearest, my darling. What's got into you? Now we come to the question of specific electronic effects. I've been requested to explain to you how some of the noises we got on the Freakout album were manufactured. On the second disc of Freak Out, we have one long tune which is called The Return of the Son of Monster Magnet. This was an unfortunate incident. <clears throat> I'm still a little bit angry that the company did not allow me to finish the composition. What you hear on the album is the rhythm track. That is just like the basic foundation for a piece of music that was never completed. And they, I don't see how they could take it upon themselves to release an incompleted piece, but they did, and a number of people have come out to me and said how wonderful it is, but I think it's really crappy. And I'll tell you how we made it sound that way. The rhythm consists of one set of drums and about $500 worth of uh, rented percussion equipment. You know, five... The rental of $500 is for one night. We had the whole room filled with all different kinds of drums and had about a couple hundred people in the room and just said, bang on the drums and make any kind of noise you want. We recorded a great deal of this type of sound, sort of spontaneous hokum. Then this was listened to, sifted through, the choicest noises were picked out, edited together, and superimposed on a basic rhythm track with the drums and uh, two, uh, three oscillators. And, uh, sounds played inside of a grand piano, dropping things on the strings of the piano, plucking, smashing, grunting, and bashing uh, noise. This is all assembled create the first about the first half of the composition. Second half is built mainly on vocal sounds modified by changing the speed of the tape and different equalization characteristics, which is to say equalization is uh, an electronic dealy whereby you can emphasize certain frequencies of uh, a voice or an instrument or a type of sound. It's like the bass and treble controls on your amplifier or your hi-fi set, except that in a studio you have the capability of emphasizing specific frequencies. If you were, let's say, to emphasize the 500 cycle component of a given sound, uh, if you emphasize 500 cycles on a voice, the voice tends to become fat and blurry. If, however, you're boosting the voice at 4,000 cycles, it will become crisp. It is also conceivable 
that if you boosted these both of these components at the same time, you might have a fat, blurry, crisp voice. We do not uh, have a great deal of money to experiment around with all of the possibilities for studio usage right now, but one of these days, when we get rich, we'll be able to go into a studio and grab a hold of every knob we can get our hands on and turn them all and see what they will do to the sound of normal instruments and to the sound of voices. Within the scope of our limited teenage budget, we have managed to make unusual sounds out of your everyday household variety, human voices, and uh, rock and roll instruments. It's quite possible to mangle the sound of uh, any anything in a studio. You can take, for instance, the sound of a voice, and by using the device known as a filter, instead of boosting certain acoustical components of the voice, you can eliminate them. Filters chop sounds out. If you were to filter a voice at 750 cycles, which is to say that all sound below 750 is removed, you get the effect of a cardboard voice, sort of like what Paul McCartney got on one of those songs in the Revolver album, I forget which one, I think, Within You and Without You. No, that's not it. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, anyway, I never listened to the Beatles. But he did this one where he sounds like there's this little weaselly voice in the background, and it's a filtered voice. And a more simplified version of the technique is to be heard in uh, Winchester Cathedral, where it sounds like megaphone a go-go.
And that's our show, but before we go, I figure I'd give you the list of the selections that you heard during this particular episode. We first heard Hungry Freak's Daddy from May 23rd, 1969, Lawrence University Chapel in Appleton, Wisconsin. We heard I Ain't Got No Heart from the February 13th, 1988 show at the Tower Theater in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Who Are the Brain Police from the State University of New York in Stony Brook, New York on October 16th of 1971. Go Cry on Somebody Else's Shoulder and Motherly Love from the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, June 25th, 1966. How Could I Be Such a Fool from November 3rd, 1975, Spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Wowie Zowie from the May 1st, 1974 show at Broom County Arena in Binghamton, New York. You Didn't Try to Call Me from the Fillmore West in San Francisco, California, November 5th, 1970. Anyway, The Wind Blows featuring Howard Kalin on vocals from the December 4th, 1971 show at the Montreux Casino, the infamous Fire Concert. I'm Not Satisfied, also from the June 25th, 1966 show at Fillmore Auditorium. You're probably wondering why I'm here from the May 8th, 1974 show at Edinburgh State College in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. Trouble Every Day from the May 19th, 1969 show at Massey Hall in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Help I'm a Rock from the Appleton, Wisconsin, 1969 show. It Can't Happen Here from the May 8th, 1974 show at Edinburgh State College in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. And Cream Cheese Work Part from the MoFo Project Object album, the four-disc version. And we're going to close out the show with an improvisation from October 3rd, 1968 from the Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, Denmark. This one seemed like a good idea to put here because it appeared on the old Mystery Box bootleg vinyl box set under the title Return of the Son of Monster Magnet. And that's our show. We'll be back soon with the 50th anniversary of the Absolutely Free album. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls.
That's our show. Thank you very much for listening. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker, Andrew Greenway, Mick Eakers, and Scott Fisher. Be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news, and also to purchase Andrew's book, Zappa the Hard Way, the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway the Hard Way Tour. For those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books, my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com. And if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And you should also check out Mick Eaker's excellent site on Frank's Gear at www.zappasgear.com. And for more information about Scott Fisher, you can go to fishersflicker.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R-S. F-L-I-C-K-E-R dot com. Scott is a very wonderful musician and songwriter, and you can check out some of his music at that website. If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at MOI1969, that's 1969, at SNET On behalf of Andrew Greenaway, Mick Eakers, and Scott Fisher, this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. Thanks a lot. Good night.